Good morning. We're going to work our way through Paul's first letter to the Church of Corinth. Uh, talk a little bit about some background things. Corinth was a dazzling modern Greek city. If you lived there, you'd think it was my kind of town. That's what you think. Somewhat like Chicago, and that it was a vital commercial link between west and east, valuable trade center. Uh, in contrast to the poverty of the surrounding countryside, inhabit, inhabitants of Corinth were wealthy. They flaunted it. Uh, Corinth, one writer says, seems to have been a city designed for those who were preoccupied with the marks of social status. They really liked having the bells and whistles. They really liked living in a place that was far different from its environs. Um, one writer said perhaps no city in the empire offered so congenial an atmosphere for individual and corporate advancement. Corinth was a city of yuppies, young, upwardly mobile professionals. The kind of things that you had to do to be in Corinth, schmoozing, massaging a superior's ego, you had to rub shoulders with the powerful, you had to pull strings, scratch each other's back, and you dragged rivals' names through the mud. That's what you did in order to achieve status in the society, to rise above the fray, and that's what the people in Corinth wanted to do. They wanted to stand out. Uh, the problem was that not that the church was in Corinth, but that too much of Corinth was in the church. Uh, power manifesting itself in ruthlessness and self-advancement percolated in the church at Corinth. Uh, for many, the Christian community had become another area where you could gain status. And so it was important that you were part of churches that allowed you to have status. Um, most of all, most if not all the problems that Paul addresses were hatched from the influence of this setting because of the way people conceived of what church should give them. It should give me an opportunity to feel better about myself, to walk a little more proudly in life. First Corinthians is the continuation of an ongoing conversation between Paul and the inhabitants of this city. It's a warning. And it's a very carefully crafted warning. Because when you think of the letters to Corinthians in the Bible, there's two of them. Here's what you have to do. One equals two. And two equals four. Um, one equals two. First Corinthians is really the second letter. One equals two. He did a letter prior to this. What ends up happening in his first letter, individuals who read it within the house churches kind of took it and turned it in the direction that they wanted to turn it to. So Paul then, when he writes 1 Corinthians, is very careful with what he says because it's being bent. So the 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter. And 2 Corinthians is actually the fourth letter. We don't know where these other letters are. But this is a very carefully crafted letter, as we've said. Look what it says as Paul opens up this letter with a greeting. He says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, 
to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is a greeting. It's the way Paul opens his letters. And after the greeting, he puts on his doctor's garb. And he gives the church a spiritual checkup. Um, He assesses the health of the church in Corinth. And that question when we assess the health of a church, what are the indications that a church is healthy? What would you check? What would you talk about? Um, Spiritual disciplines and programs, conversions, budget. Um, What Paul gets right into in verses 10 through 17 as he does a spiritual kind of an inventory, lets them know what their church is like and how healthy it is. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says... I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. When Paul assesses the relative health of this church and talks about what he sees, he talks about divisions. The Corinthians were called into fellowship in Christ, but they've divided up the body of Christ into competing cliques. Paul knows this because Chloe's people, who probably are from another city, have heard it in that city. And so they've heard of what's happening in Corinth, went to Paul and said, by the way, do you know what's happening in Corinth? They're kind of competing into different parties, and one's saying, I follow this person, and one's saying, I follow that person. And what Paul indicates relative to the spiritual health of this place, they suffer from eye disease. Eye disease. I follow Paul. I follow Cephas. I follow Apollos. I follow Christ. Eye disease. They associate themselves with certain high-profile figures. 
They were influenced by a secular perspective on leadership that was personality-centered. What they wanted, they wanted bragging rights. They wanted to be able to say, I go to the place that was most influenced by Paul. And doing that, and that's an I problem. It's about, that's what makes me feel good about where I go. Um, Very secular perspective on leadership, according to Paul, personality-centered, and the I points to the root of the problem at Corinth. This is the root of the problem. It was about what's in it for me. What will benefit me? What will make me money? What will give me pleasure? What church should I go to? Let me think. What will benefit me? What will be good for my checkbook? What will give me pleasure? That's the questions they asked and answered. And that's what Corinth was like. Does that sound familiar? That sound like a culture that we know something about? Uh, we live in a very powerful culture. We live in the same kind of environment that Corinth did. We understand these kind of things, I think. Uh, the issue is not about Paul's leadership as it is in a lot of other cities where they're attacking him. They're not attacking Paul, it doesn't seem. The the Quarrels are among the bigwigs in the church, scrambling for position, scrambling for status. Paul sees the divisions as evidence of a power outage. And here's what it says, as the cross being emptied of power. We talked about that, the cross emptied of power. It's possible then for the cross to be divested of its influence, emptied of power. Emptied means emptied. So that the influence that the cross could bring, it's possible to drain it of influence. That's what Paul indicates. And and what Paul indicates is the evidence of a cross emptied of power is the, is the evidence of divisions, factions, splits. Um, he's really concerned, Paul, in his day that the church is going to divide into threes. That the body of Christ would be divided into threes. And again, I told you before, I I was curious about this. At one point, I I just looked up at Wikipedia, and I just typed in Christian denominations. And then they had an article, and I clicked on it. And what they said, (laughs) in terms of the number of Christian denominations, I've told you this, I believe, 41 Thousand. 41,000 Christian denominations. Paul concerned about three. We are 18,000 times worse off than Paul is. And I did a little bit of math. That means from the beginning of the church, a split every 18 months for the last 2,000 years. Um, we're that much Worse off, our problem is for no fourteen thousand times worse than his day. This is, according to Paul, no small issue. Again, he says, "Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of His power." Divisions, evidences a powerless cross. What that means, and again, as we kind of hear him talking to us. In many ways, we might assume that our church in 
the church in our day is healthier than it was in his day. If this is the indicator, if we're going by programs, the church is much healthier in our day. Numbers, budget. But if the evidence is divisions, we're not doing real well. And the power of the cross is not evidenced. Because it's not evidenced just by spiritual disciplines, but by the presence or absence of eye problems. Paul goes on and he washes his hands because he doesn't want them to to be able to link this to him. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I think he mentions these things because these guys were probably some of the wealthier guys in the city. One of them's a Jew and one of them's a Gentile. And it could well be that the churches meet in their house. And these guys might be part of the factioning or the, the strife that's occurring. They come from different backgrounds. Um, whether we know that or not, but anyways, divisions are occurring. This has been uh, an issue. Luther talks about this when the first Protestants in his day were called Lutherans. Here's, his, here's Luther's response to it. By the way, I, you ever heard this? I like this little story. Um, somebody went to Norway, and and I guess there's a city in Norway called Hell. So this guy... I, I, I don't know where this guy was from. He's a pastor. Anyways, he comes back and he does this report. Devin's going to report maybe going to Israel. And he'll, he'll talk about what his trip was like. This guy came back and talked about his trip to Norway. And he says, I've, I've been to hell. And I'm sorry to say, most of the people are Lutherans. Ah. <laughs> uh, 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 Martin Luther, he ended up uh, talking about this, and not not about hell, but about um, about the first Protestant being called Lutherans. And here's here's what here's what Luther had to say: What is Luther? The teaching is not mine, nor was I crucified for anyone. How did I, poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to the point where people call the children of Christ by my evil name? That's, that's Lutherans. That's that's Luther's uh, take on Protestants being called Lutherans. He criticized preachers for falling prey to the temptation of using the pulpit in order to increase their status. This seems to be happening in Paul's time as well in Corinth. Um, here's what Luther said: May God protect us against the preachers who please all the people and enjoy a good testimony from everybody. He cried, faithful preachers should teach only the word of God and seek only his honor and praise. Uh, it, what we think might be happening, especially in Corinth, there was a guild of called virtuoso orators from wealthy families who attracted large followings. They were very eloquent. And they really were good at turning a phrase, at wordsmithery. And they could... Talk about Jesus and talk about truth in a very captivating, compelling way, sweeping people along in the oratory and 
capturing their emotions. And, and Paul's aware of this, that these influential leaders with high social status, they were courted by officials and community and by the church. Um, and Paul has an issue with that. Uh, eloquence that elevates the status of the preacher cancels the power of the cross. When eloquence elevates the status of the preacher so that it becomes a cult following relative, what a wonderful, that, Paul indicates, that does damage to the power of the cross. Orators become less concerned about the value of their message than about their approval rating from the audience. To preach the gospel intending to charm and captivate the crowds in order to earn Enhance one's own prestige, empties the cross of power. Paul finds it contemptible, literally contemptible, and very unhealthy to think that preachers could ever exploit the proclamation of one who was crucified as a means to upgrade their own social status. just doesn't make sense to him. Jesus did what he did and was vilified to occupy a place to be his spokesperson and to use that platform as a means of increasing one's status, as far as Paul is concerned in his day, is contemptible. He just can't understand it. Um, Somebody wrote, to treat the gospel of the cross of Christ as a vehicle for promoting self-esteem turns it upside down and empties it of all that it offers and demands. Um, to be full of oneself as a golden-tongued orator is not a good sign. The powerless cross, it comes from a lot of different things. It comes basically from an eye problem, individuals wanting to be in places where cult followings and personality cults, that exists. What about a powerful cross? How do you get around that? Again, we're not going to turn the clock back. It's not possible. We are not going to unify the Christian church. It can't happen. It's, it's too, the, the seed already came out of the orange 41,000 times. And we're not going to get 41,000 seeds back in one orange. It's just not going to happen. What can we do? What can we do? It's, it, I guess, according to Paul, it's not a small problem. We can't dismiss this and say, well, you know, God still is very powerful. He is. He is. Yeah, but it's an issue. The cross being emptied of power by divisions in Corinth, there was was another place where the divisions were occurring. And in Corinth, it was about personality cults. In this other place, it was more doctrinal, but interestingly, it was Crete. And, And in this place, Paul gives some practical advice for how do you deal with divisions? What do you do? Let's let's see what he says. Uh, Titus chapter 2. So Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness 
and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rules and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Paul begins by saying, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. What Paul understood is the grace of God, fully understood, is what teaches us to live godly lives. It leads us to do the things God wants and not to do the things he doesn't want. Grace does that. Grace does that. When we remain in it, when it becomes the focus, when we become aware of his commitments, then the understanding of those commitments, the understanding of his grace, ends up changing the way we relate to God, changing the way we relate to ourselves. We end up being able to put I aside for the time being. If God loves us eternally, and if we're really going to end up in a good place, then, to the degree we believe that deeply, we don't have to get our own way to the same degree. If this is the only chance we have, if this is the only time that you're going to be in a position to be able to enjoy something, then you're going to have to push to get what you want. You're going to push to get what you want. But what the Bible indicates we're going to be around a thousand years from now, not here, in another place. And in that place, you will be perfectly and completely happy forever. In light of the fact that grace brings us to that place, as that understanding comes, it does impact us so that we don't have to get what we want to the same degree. Um, grace teaches us to live godly lives, legalism can promote devotion. Legalism, hard. Do this or else. That can promote devotion. You know what else it promotes? Divisions. Divisions. That's not a good sign. We tend to think, well, if there's devotion, then divisions are okay. It's, no, that's not okay. That's not, according to Paul, he puts the stuff, he said, this church is not in a good spot. What would he say in our day? Again, let's, let's keep on following and see what he says. Um, so what do we do? He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. When Paul was in Crete, what he did from place to place, he put leaders in place. It says in Titus 1, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So he would put leaders in place, and to the degree these leaders were godly and not in it for self-gratification, and he tried his best to make that happen. 
what he told the people was, do what they say. Do what they say. Go along with it. Uh, they're not perfect. That's okay. Um, you don't need to grab for all the gusto you can now. Jesus is going to be a perfect leader, and you're going to be with him. And, and so he tries to get people to do what they say. Don't fight them. De- fighting leads to divisions. Division is not a real good sign. You want to avoid those if you can. That's what Paul would say. But, 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 he said to be obedient, literally. To be obedient means to be persuaded by their leaders. That's the word. It um, goes on to said to speak evil of no one. Literally, it's what he says is don't slander. We've talked about this before. Today, slander means to make false and damaging statements about someone. Slander is when you make false and damaging statements about someone. Biblically, the biblical definition of dif- is different. Slander just literally means to speak against. And what slander means is when you talk about somebody. It might be true, but you are talking about somebody in an accusatory manner, in a judgmental manner, in a negative manner. And what Paul says, don't. Don't do it. There, but certainly fighting for the truth is, is necessary, and to some degree it might be, but if it leads to divisions, the cross is being emptied of power. It doesn't guard the cross. To speak evil of someone doesn't guard the cross. It guts it. So Paul's indicating. Um, the Bible just doesn't target false statements. It includes true statements that impugn a person's character. You're speaking negative of someone, you don't. If we speak ill of one another, again, we're guarding the cross. We're not guarding the cross. We're gutting it. Um, we justify running others down. But what Paul would say, in so doing, we empty the cross of power. I've talked about this before. There's three gates through which you should go. When you, if you say something about someone, somebody says, whoosh, 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 and you're thinking of either listening or passing it on. Three questions to ask. Is it true? Is it true? And if it's not, just let it stand. But not just that. Is it necessary? Do you have to pass this on? Is it necessary to pass it on? Finally, is the big one. Is it kind? Is it true? Is it necessary? Is it kind? If it doesn't pass those three tests, don't pass it on. Don't say it to somebody else. It tears them down. And tearing someone down doesn't guard the cross. It guts it. It ends up dividing one person against another, another person against another. And Paul would say, don't do it. Um, he, Paul talks about avoid quarreling, be gentle, show perfect courtesy toward all people. And then Paul, in his writing, again, this he says this to everyone. Do that. Um, be obedient. Do what leaders say. Speak evil of no one. Uh, avoid quarreling. Be gentle. And then he then he targets a group of people to be to watch out for. Watch out for. That's what he says. As for a person who stirs up division, the word, the, the, literally, what it means, 
watch out for heretics. Now, I want you to understand what a heretic is. In our day, a heretic is somebody who passes on something doctrinally that's not correct. Not at this time. That's not what a heretic was. An irisist is literally somebody who creates divisions. It's somebody who takes a minor point of truth, magnifies it out of all proportion, talks about that, and ends up dividing congregations. That's what a heretic was in Paul's day. It was somebody who created divisions. And and Paul says, and this is what he says about this, as, as for a person who stirs up divisions, for a person who is a heretic, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Again, interesting, this person is not immoral. It's not an immoral person. This person is a godly person, a devoted person. They really care about the truth. But their, their caring about the truth is hard-edged. And what Paul says, warn that person once, warn him a second time. Again, this is tough stuff. After that, wash your hands of him. And he ends up saying, such a person is warped and sinful. He's self-condemned. Um, such a per- yeah, a person who builds walls, Paul indicates, creates division. They do that on the outside because that's what's happening on the inside having to make it happen out here is an indication of something sick inside. Paul says, watch out. Um, I think I told you about this. In terms of heretics, I'll tell you again, I like, I love the story. A man was walking along San Francisco's Golden Gate Bridge when he saw a woman about to jump off. Um, ran up to her trying to dissuade her from committing suicide. He told her simply, God loved her. Tear came to her eye. He then asked her, are you a Christian, a Jew, a Hindu, or what? I'm a Christian, she replied. Me too. Small world, Protestant or Catholic? Protestant. Me too. What denomination? Baptist. Me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? Northern Baptist. He remarked, well, me too. (laughs) Northern conservative Baptist or northern liberal Baptist? She answered, northern conservative Baptist. He said, well, that's amazing. Northern conservative fundamentalist Baptist or northern conservative reformed Baptist? Northern conservative fundamentalist Baptist. Remarkable. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Eastern Region? She told him Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region. A miracle, he cried. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? She said, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. He then shouted, die heretic, and pushed her over the rail. (laughs) There was a book, uh, as we think about, how do we 
deal with one another in, in a way that allows us to break down walls. There's a word for conversation that breaks down walls. We've talked about it before, but I'll bring it back to your, your thoughts. Dialogue. 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 Dia means through. And log is from logos words. Dialogue are through words. Words that break down walls. There's four different kinds of conversation. There is dialogue. There is debate. There's decision making. And there's discussion. Dialogue is unique in that three things have to be in place in order for dialogue to occur. You can do discussion and decision-making and debate without these things, but dialogue, three things have to be in place for dialogue to occur. Um, there has to be equality, empathy, and exploration. Um, but discussion differs from dialogue Discussion is about exchanging ideas. It's exchanging ideas. It's easy for us to bat ideas back and forth. Discussion is, is not that difficult. Debate differs from dialogue. The purpose of debate is to win an argument. It's to vanquish or correct an opponent. Uh, debate is the opposite of dialogue, really. Debate creates walls. It makes one person right, the other person wrong. And um, the worst possible way to advance mutual understanding, if you, if you want to, the worst possible way to advance mutual understanding is to debate and try to vanquish somebody, make them see the error of their ways. Uh, Decision-making differs from dialogue. The purpose of decision-making is to present enough data to support a decision. Um, if there's a move to decision-making or discussion or debate, dialogue is not going to happen. And so what is dialogue? What does that take? Again, there's three E's, equality, empathy, and exploration. Equality. Dialogue becomes possible only, have, only after trust has been built and higher-ranking people have for the occasion removed their badges of authority and are participating as true equals. There must be mutual trust. You might be able to be equals. You're not going to open up dialogue if you don't feel equal. If you sense that the other person feels that you are less than, it's just not going to happen. Equality must be real. The boss can't have you come in and, and take off his suit coat and say, no, we're just equals here. Well, you no, know you're not. <laughs> it's not. It's really got to be equals. Then there's got to be empathy. Empathy is the ability to think someone else's thoughts and feel someone else's feelings. That's what empathy is. Understanding another person's thoughts and feelings. In order for dialogue to occur, what needs to happen, the person you sit down with, the purpose is, I want to understand this person. And if your purpose is to correct them or if judgment is in place, Dialogue is not going to occur, can occur. For there to be dialogue, there's got to be safety. 
There's got to be equals. You have to believe that the other person wants to understand. Oftentimes, when we're talking with somebody in debate, we, we are listening, but we're really not listening to the other person. We're framing our next salvo. We're, we're listening in order to, to figure out how we, and that's, again, that can occur, and there's a place for debate, but debate cannot, un, cannot accomplish what dialogue can accomplish. Um, must be empathy. There must be about attention to listening. Um, it takes a lot of patience to listen. It takes a lot of patience. But it begins with the purpose. I want to understand this person. I want to understand why they're thinking what they're thinking and saying what they're saying. By the way, in terms of empathy, dialogue is interpersonal. I would say dialogue can be intra and should be intrapersonal as well. The reason why we create fights out here is because there's fights in here. We think and feel things that we automatically think are bad. I shouldn't think that. I shouldn't. And I wonder what would happen if we were a little bit less judgmental of ourselves. Listen to me. If we Try to understand ourselves. Why do I think that? Why am I doing that? I, I told you a story. I'll tell it very quickly. I remember when um, I was attending a, a prayer seminar, and the individual who was convening it told us to go and confess our sins. And and so we all went to private places, and I took out my pencil, and I'm, I, I grew up Catholic. I'm great at confessing sins. So I just, I just started writing it down. You know, and that's what I did. I, you know, this is, this is a piece of cake. And again, but what I had done, I said, okay, God, show me my sin. And what I ended up thinking was that there's really no... I'm not embellishing this. It's really what happened. I remember it very well. Um, I didn't hear a voice, but there was a thought came somewhere from, you asked me to show you your sin and then didn't let me do it. That's what, and literally, literally what I did, I was at this desk and I put my pencil down, pen down. And I said, okay, I'm not going to write anything down until I think it's what you told me. sat there for a little while and then I I started to think why am I doing the things I'm doing what am I thinking and I started to and it didn't take me very long and, and when I picked up my pen this is what I put I am acting like an abandoned child and I started to cry that's what was going on. I was doing all these things on the outside because I felt alone, felt isolated. And understanding, that's the deep thing. And understanding that deep thought. See, that dialogue is something that can happen between people. It can happen within you. Why do you do what you do? 
maybe if you were less judgmental of yourself, if you thought about why you do what you do, you might end up seeing something. And you would find the root of the problem, not just the fruit of the problem. I think that's what dialogue encourages. Does that sound dangerous to you? To be accepting of yourself, wanting to understand what's happening? What would happen? We tend to be less frightened of divisions than of a lack of devotion. Divisions are problems. And creating self-awareness is an important thing. Being aware of not just ourselves but others, taking time to sit down. Why do you think what you think? Why do you do what you do? I want to understand. And I want to let you know why. Because, again, there's equality, empathy, and exploration. When there's equality and empathy, you know what we can do? I can tell you something. You can tell me something. I told you this illustration. This There's a book. Um, Daniel Yankelevich, I think, The Magic of Dialogue. I've talked about it on several occasions. It's an excellent book. He tells a story about a, um, I've told this before, but let me tell it briefly. Actually, two things. He talked about uh, Reagan and Gorbachev in Reykjavik, Iceland. And when the Cold War was still being, um, they're trying to deal with it. And so they had this conference in Reykjavik and they were trying to broker a peace. And so they just kind of, uh, there's an official meetings were over and they just kind of sat down someplace. Reagan and Gorbachev. And as equals, they started to talk to one another about their dreams for one another. Reagan listened to Gorbachev. Tell me more. Gorbachev listened to Reagan. Why do you think that? And they talked to one another. And what Gorbachev would say, he credits that with doing as much as anything for ending the Cold War. He understood him, the magic of dialogue. Interesting, there's a story about this this, uh, university that was uh, known for its research. It was an excellent research-based university. It wasn't really good at helping postdoctoral students. You know, they didn't get a lot of assistance there. It wasn't rigged for that. Everybody who was there was a specialist in research. And in terms of being able to create an organizational environment where new ones could come in, they didn't do real well. Anyways, so they, uh, the president stepped down, and so they had to pick a new president. And so there's the board of trustees, and they kind of want the school to be successful. And then there's the faculty. And they want research to happen. So they're trying to pick a president. Can you imagine what happened? Didn't really go well. Uh, the, uh, the board of trustees, they pick somebody who might be able to be an administrator. And the faculty says, what do we need that for? And then so they're bickering, yik, 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 back and forth. And then this one uh, businessman on the board of trustees, he, he stands up in the midst of the meeting. He said, you know what? Here's the way I see it. Businessmen are generalists. I basically will do anything that works. And he goes, and the reason why we hire you is because we're specialists. You're specialists. And we hire you because you are precise. You're not a generalist. I guess if you came up with a candidate that we like, that's not very reasonable, is it? Probably not going to happen, is it? And 
teachers felt understood, and so they backed down a little bit, and the business found, felt like they were understood. Here's a person, they, he's understanding what is it that is bringing about this rift between us. And you know what they ended up doing? They ended up being able to hire a top-notch researcher and also change the way the university dealt with postdoctoral students. Why? Dialogue. Dialogue. Um, Paul, in speaking to Corinth, they were they had eye problems in Corinth. They wanted to be in the place that made them feel special. They really didn't want to set aside what was right for them in order to enter into a place where they could treat one another. Really is really what the communion is about. It's about all of us together coming to the table. Uh, this is what Christ died for. Again, we live in a very challenging time um, relative to divisions. But Paul gives us some practical advice. But now let's practice this. It's, um, we're going to go to the table together. Uh, Jesus died so that we could be members of his body. He gives us different gifts. and uh, But what he tells us is this is his care for us. And as we understand what he did for us, grace, making room for his care for us, allows us to feel more taken care of. We feel a little bit less bent on getting what we want. We can defer to others, be a little more humble. Anyways, come to the table and think about Jesus' purpose, um, his care. At some point, Take the bread and take the juice. Think about his love for you. Think about how long that love is going to last. A thousand years, two thousand years, ten thousand years. And on this side of eternity, perhaps ask God, would you make me more like Christ? At some point, get the, I won't tell you when to take it, take it and think about him. And then we'll sing a song in closing. Bow with me a little bit. Dear Father, we just want to say thank you for um, the message this morning and for helping us understand. Um, probably the most important thing is both dialogue with one another and dialogue with you and dialogue with ourselves and help us to be less judgmental and uh, help us to be less harsh and punitive. Help us to operate less like abandoned children. You are our Father. You love us. You ran to us. And we're so thankful for that. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.